Good morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. There should be a black Bible in front of you. Uh, Grab it, use it, take it home if you don't have a Bible. Uh, You can grab your phones and scroll to a book of Nahum. I want you to have that in front of you. So as you get there, let's talk for a second about sequels. Uh, One of the Hollywood's favorite things to do is make sequels. This is how we end up with movies like Paul Bart, Mall Cop 2, and Taken 3. Like, nobody has seen those. How about The Land Before Time 27, right? Like, it's just not, nobody's watching The Land Before Time 27. Movies the world didn't need and probably wouldn't even, the world would be better off without them. But sequels also produce Toy Story 2 and 3 and Toy Story 4, uh, through which I cry throughout the whole movie because they're that good. Today, today we're going to discover that Nahum is kind of like Jonah 2. If Jonah was subtitled Jonah 1 and Unexpected Mercy, then this would be subtitled Jonah 2. Judgment is here, starting Liam Neeson. But we're, what we're going to find out in this book, this little book, is that just like Jonah, this isn't ultimately a book about a prophet or, or an evil city or even a book about judgment. It, it involves all those things. Sure, like judgment and the evil city will be part of the plot, part of a story, uh, but ultimately it's a book about the character of God. It's a book about a character of God, who he is, and who we are in light of who he is. So let's dive in. Let's learn about the character of God. So who's Nahum and what is this book about? So Nahum 1.1 says this, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So an oracle means that God will pronounce through a prophet to the people, usually Israel or Judah, about their actions in the present and will also foretell future events. Oracles have certain characteristics, like they come from God, and they have direct, uh, they are directed to a people or nation. They're intended to encourage or correct God's people, and they emphasize the sovereignty of God. So in this case, God is pronouncing his oracle through the prophet Nahum about the people of Nineveh. So Nahum is writing this book. And we don't actually know much about him besides that he is from Elkosh. The historical context, context is very similar to last week. In fact, the three books of Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk overlap each other. And so their context, and this historical context is very similar. So if you remember from uh, in the beginning, we talked about how Israel split into two states. The northern state of Israel it was the northern state of Israel and then the southern state of Judah. And we spent our first several weeks on Israel. And by the time Nahum's time arrives, Israel has been destroyed by Assyria. And so we move towards Judah. The king during the time is King Manasseh. He took over from King Hezekiah, who was a pretty good king. And if you were here with us last week, you might remember that Manasseh was considered one of the worst kings in Judah's history. Uh, he had many dealings with Assyria. Manasseh came into power at a young age because Hezekiah died. And in his life, uh, Manasseh introduced idol worship into the temple. He caused all kinds of injustice and even introduced child sacrifice. So after Manasseh, Ammon 
becomes king and he is killed in two years and Josiah becomes the king during that time. And Josiah, King Josiah, is another good king. He's the one who got rid of idols in the temple and he got rid of idolatrous priests and he got rid of uh, of the house of the male cult prostitutes. He got even rid of the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. And he reinstated the Passover. So King Josiah is a good king. And Nahum is writing uh, during the latter days of Manasseh and to the uh, and the early days of Josiah. And he's writing against the nation of Assyria, but his poetry is for Judah, for their encouragement. And here's why this is an encouragement. Assyria was a great power during this time. Assyria is where Nineveh was located. And Nineveh was where Jonah, if you remember from our first week when we were in Minor Prophets, had been called to go and share the message of repentance. Nineveh was this huge city. It was like New York or L.A. of their time. It was a huge wall around it to guard it from attacks. Inside, it had beautiful parks, gardens, and other world-class facilities. Remember, this is the city that Jonah hated. And this is the city that surprisingly repented. But but a century or more has passed since the time of Jonah, and Nineveh and the nation of Assyria is once again destructive. They are powerful, and they have been battling Egypt for power. The Assyrians also were known for being brutal to their enemies. They were known for their violence. This is the nation that destroyed Israel. And when this book is written, Assyria is still at peak of their power. No one is thinking that that they will fall apart. But Nahum is foretelling their downfall. In the midst of the height, he's saying, you will fall. But the book doesn't start with Nineveh and Assyria right away. The book starts with God, a description of God's character. The book opens with imagery that alludes to Mount Sinai. Here's how it starts. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, and the world of all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rock are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So, so what is what is Nahum saying? He is introducing God and he is saying the thing that is of first importance is God and his character. This is who he is. Look at him. Look at this God and know him. And this God is not some weak God. Our God is a powerful God. In verse 6, in fact, he says, in fact, who can stand before his indignation? 
Who can endure the heat of his anger? And the answer is no one. No one can. If God says something, it will happen. He is powerful and not just powerful. Our text says he is also jealous. He's jealous. It's a picture of a lover or a husband who gets angry when someone else competes for the heart of his wife and when her heart goes after another lover. The image here is a single-minded worship of God of God alone. As we have studied the minor prophets, we know that the opposite of this picture has been the reality for Israelites. God's people have brought many gods into the temple, idolatries at the heart of the people, and God required single-minded worship of him. He doesn't want false gods to be worshipped because he is the only God that should be worshipped. And Nahum tells us that God is also, so he's powerful, he is, um, he is jealous, and he's also patient. He's not quick to anger, for he's not indifferent, but he's not indifferent either. Far from it. So he's not quick to anger, but he's not indifferent. He's far from it. God is slow to anger and great in power. God speaks and things happen. In the, in the creation account, God speaks and mountains form. God speaks and chaos orders into beauty. Here, Nahum tells us that God can also speak and undo things. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and, and he dries up all the rivers. God is in charge, and he has that power and authority over all things. And then in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So he's not just powerful and jealous. He's not just patient. He's not just in charge. He is also good. And he knows the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. He will be a strong, safe refuge for them. But also, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God will make himself known and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. In other words, God will judge. God is a God who cares and, and, and he will judge. Nahum continues this in the same vein as last week's conversation about God being loving and just. He draws a picture of God pulling in close someone who needs protecting and then facing off the one attacking them. I read a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that talks about this. Calvin is sitting on a swing at the school playground when Mo, the local bully, comes up and says, Get off the swing, Twinkie. Calvin says, Forget it, Mo. Wait your turn. Living up to his reputation as a bully, Mo hits Calvin with a tremendous punch, sending him flying. Lying on the ground, battered and bruised, Calvin says it's hard to be religious when certain people are never incinerated by bolts of lightning. <laughs> this comic strip is alluding, it's saying that inside of all of us, we all know that injustice is wrong and that God needs to do something about it. God needs to do something about injustice. And Zephaniah and Nahum says that God will do something about it. Justice will be served. It might be served soon or in the end when we meet Jesus face to face. There's a scholar, N.T. Wright, puts it like this. He says, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably 
anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. In particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he's neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he's neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he's neither loving nor good nor wise. Let that let that quote sit for a second. And as you ponder on it, because Nahum's prophecy is an example of the righteous judgment of God. He's talking about an all-powerful, jealous God who has committed himself to the truth and he will avenge. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is his character. This is the God of the Bible. It's not just, and it's not just powerful and jealous. He's not just patient. He's not just in charge. He is good. He is safe. He, he is a safe place in a day of trouble to those who seek refuge in Him. And He will judge in the end. Did Nahum say everything he could say about God? No, but, but that's enough. It's enough to determine who is in charge. God is. Who is over all things? God is. And this God is a God who will judge evil among the nations. Which nations? It doesn't matter. God is in charge and he's the one who will judge evil. In this case, in the case of Assyria, he offered mercy and kindness and compassion when Jonah thought thought they should deserve punishment. But Assyria returned to their evil ways. So this time around, God is bringing judgment. God is in charge and he's the one who will judge evil. Not you, not me, God is. And the thing is to notice that after verse 1, we don't hear the name of Nineveh again in this chapter. In fact, there's a numerous connection to chapter 1, to the book of Isaiah, that foretells the fall of Babylon and fall of Jerusalem. The, the, the descriptions are so similar that one could assume Nahum is describing the fall of any nation. In these early verses, Nahum is showing us that Nineveh is just one nation from many evil, wicked nations that God will judge eventually. Will Assyria be judged eventually? Yes. Will Babylon be judged eventually? Yep. Will the Roman Empire be judged eventually? Yes. Will any empire that has practiced evil be judged eventually? To Nahum, the answer is yes, because God is in charge. Not you, not I, but God is. So in light of the, uh, in light of this character of God, in light of everything we just talked about, and with that in mind, let's go to chapter two. Chapter two zeroes in on Nineveh. It describes the downfall of this great nation. In verse 3, we get an image of how the downfall plays out. It's like a movie scene. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On a day he mustered them. The cypress spear are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro. Through the squares, they gleam like torches, they dart like lightning. He remembered his officers, they stumble as they go. They haste 
to the wall and sage toward sage tower is set up. Nahum is describing soldiers lining up as chariots are coming and they are taking over the city. This mighty city, the wall that protected them is crumbling down. Soldiers are dying. An enemy is here and they're about to destroy Nineveh. And we know through historical books, this is Babylon who is destroying them. Nahum goes into detail about how their destruction will take place. In verse 6, in verse six shows an area of strength. Well, a strength for them was the waterway. It becomes a weakness. The invaders have taken control of the city's water system and turned it against them. Nineveh is described in verse 7 as a princess in mourning and in verse 8 as a rapidly drained pool. Nineveh is like a princess who is stripped of all her beauty and luxury. The city is humiliated by the ravaging destruction of forces that she is no longer strong enough to defeat. And people are running away like a pool that's being drained. In verse 9, they, they had all this luxury. In verse 10, but the city is ruined. It is desolated. It is destroyed. The mighty have fallen. The emptiness is ruling the day. And in verse 13, Nahum again reminds us that God is in charge. Not this mighty nation that has fallen or not the nation that will destroy them, but God is in charge. He says in verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. So God is just. He offered mercy and compassion through Jonah, and they listened. But in time, they have fallen into their violent ways again, and God is bringing justice. Now in chapter 3, now we get to chapter 3, and this is the aftermath. This is the aftermath. In other words, chapter 3 describes the condition of the city after the destruction took place. And it starts with a state, statement of woe. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. So this is a poetic way of saying that the nation of Assyria was built on the blood of the innocent. It's Nahum's way of saying that injustice ruled the day, and through injustice they have built an empire, and their cruel cruelty ran its course. In fact, in verse 12, describes their evil ways as a fig tree that is ready to be eaten. Nahum says, says all your fortresses are like fig trees. With the first ripe fig, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of eater. The nation, in all their wicked ways, is ripe, and, and ripe fruit will fall and be destroyed. And the book ends with this desolated image of a Syrian king lying on the ground with a deadly injury. And no one comes to his rescue. Nahum says, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. So Assyria was cruel and Assyria was built on innocent blood and their judgment came and no one answered their cry of help. Their enemies only clapped for their downfall. And we know that eventually this prophecy came true. While Nahum is writing this, Assyria is still a great power, but, but eventually they do fall. 
Babylon takes over. Nahum ends the book with this question, though. He answers answers with this question, For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? There are only two minor prophets that end with the question, Jonah and Nahum. And so, in a way, Nahum wants us to remember Jonah's story. He wants us to remember the mercies that God offered Nineveh. He wants us to remember God's patience with them. He wants us to remember God's kindness. And when a nation turns away from their repentance uh, that, that we saw in Jonah towards injustice again, God will bring justice because God is a God who cares and God is in charge and he is powerful and he is jealous and he is patient and he's in charge and he is good and so he will he will not let injustice rule the day he will deal with it because God deeply cares and that's good news right That's good news. It's good news because God won't let evil remain. It's good news because we have a judge who will call to account all violence and oppression. It's good news to those who are oppressed. It's good news to a child who has been abused or bullied. It's good news to to the slave and the trafficked. It's good news that God is a God of love and justice. It's good news that God will protect and deal with evil. It's good news. Chapter 1, Nahum says in verse 15, Behold, upon the mountain, the feet of him who bring good news, who published peace. So this is a similar language to another writer, Isaiah, during this time. And Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who published peace, who bring good news of happiness, who published salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So Isaiah is describing this after Babylon just destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And when that happened... When Jerusalem is destroyed, most people were carried back into exile as slaves. Well, there's a group that is left behind in Jerusalem wondering what just happened. Did, did our God just abandon us? We just, you know, in our text, we just learned that God is in charge and God will deal with injustice. But for Israelites, they thought they were the chosen ones. But they had abandoned God. They have turned towards idolatry and they have picked up many of the practices that the countries like Nineveh practice. So when Jerusalem is captured, it's not surprising to see that their mess led them to this point. Everything seems lost. But Isaiah speaks those words into that desolation. He's speaking these words in this passage into their destruction. And here's what he's describing. He's talking about a watchman standing on a tower overlooking all the ruins and desolation and despair. And he sees a messenger running. And this messenger is running and shouting, good news. This is where Isaiah says what what we just read. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Good news. This is the gospel. Uh, The feet are beautiful because the message is beautiful. And what is the beautiful message? That God is still king. And that God will return to the city and set up his kingdom and bring peace to the land. So when we get to New Testament, the word gospel reappears from the mouth of Jesus. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. 
proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is the messenger who brings the good news. And with his life, he lived this good news out. And eventually, because of the way he lived this good news out, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. And Jesus lets them. Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And here's the good news. Jesus defeats death. He deals with injustice and brokenness, and he takes it all upon himself. He deals with our sin and corruption. In chapter 3 of Nahum, in verse 11, Nahum says, You also will be drunken. And this is talking about the divine wrath that's about to fall upon this city. It's talking about the city that is required to drink the cup of God's wrath. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he's bringing good news. This good news takes us to the cross where Jesus drinks from the same cup. Jesus was in the garden praying before he went to the cross. In Matthew 26, verse 39, we read, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus is talking about the cup of God's wrath that was about to fall on him. And this cup is a symbol of the judgment of evil and sinfulness. This cup is meant for me and for you. But Jesus, who committed no sins, takes the cup and drinks it. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 50, it says that Jesus has granted us forgiveness by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rules and authorities and put them to open shame by trumping over them in him. You see, in the end, judgment will not be about the fall of a town or a city. It will be uh, The judgment will be about God's judgment of, of people who have chosen to live inside of their own kingdom, satisfying their own desires and rejecting God as their king. But the good news is that God provided a way out of that kind of kingdom. Through his son who canceled the record of wrong, record of wrongs that stood against us. So God provided a way to, to save us, to pluck us out of our own kingdom into his kingdom and have him to be our king. And the king that, that, that will pluck us out of our own kingdom is a king that, that Nahum is describing. It's a king that we can trust. It's a king that who's who's in charge. It's a king that can that, that, that that's trustworthy. It's the one who speaks and things happen, and we can trust our our king who's patience. We can trust our king who deals with injustice, and we can trust our king who is kind. We can trust our king who is jealous for us. So I don't know how this hits you today. But know that this king, King Jesus, who deals with injustice on the cross, deeply loves you and cares for you. So let us pray to this king. Let's pray.